pleasure to be back here and happy Father's Day again to all you fathers. Okay, today uh, I have the privilege to open the word with you and look at um, the law and more specifically the Ten Commandments. As I understand, you'll be doing a series on that and Pastor Lucas asked me to introduce you to the Ten Commandments, which is no small order. (laughs) The Ten Commandments are obviously a bedrock and a foundation of biblical revelation and of God's law in particular. And a lot has been written on it. A lot has been said about them. Uh, So I'm going to try and compress all that into one 30-minute discussion with you guys. (laughs) So again, not a small order. But you know what? As I tell my students uh, quite often, the important things don't have to be complicated. In fact, the more important they are, the more clear and direct they tend to be in God's word. And because the Ten Commandments are so central, both the commandments themselves and how we are to look at them, even how we are to live them, is presented in a pretty clear-cut fashion. The question comes in for us as Christians, you know, those saved under the blood of Christ who also believe in the New Testament as well as the Old, and that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, the question arises, what do we do with the Ten Commandments if, like the law in general, it's all fulfilled in Christ? What does it mean for us? Right? And again, a lot has been said on this, a lot has been written, discussed, etc., etc., you know, and attempts have been made to separate the laws that don't apply as opposed to the laws that do, the more comprehensive, the more general... I'll be taking a somewhat different approach with you guys, hopefully one that at least you will see is biblically based and modeled in Christ himself, according to which all of the laws, as laid out in scripture from beginning to end, apply to us completely and fully, but in a more central and a more fundamental way than we might realize. All of the laws that God gives, of which the Ten Commandments are just the first ten. In fact, if you were to number all the laws that God gives in the Old Testament under the so-called Law of Moses, you end up with the grand number of, well, anyone know? 613. 613 laws. That's how many you end up with. You know, and beyond the Ten Commandments, which are pretty basic, you have ones like uh, don't harvest the corners of your field. You know, and most Israelites being farmers or agriculturalists at that time, that was a pretty broadly applied and applicable commandment. But what do we do with that? We who, I'll take a a shot in the dark here, probably not farmers, (laughs) most of us at least, and don't have large fields, you know, and for whom this commandment would seem irrelevant. You know, and that's just one example. But what do we do with commandments like that? You know, that seem so unapplicable, so irrelevant. Do we take the rod of most Christians and just ignore them? Or do we look at them, do we study them, and do we still try to apply them to our lives? And that's what we should be doing. And hopefully at the end of our 30 minutes, well, 27 right now, (laughs) we will know how to do that. And again, this is all modeled clearly in Scripture, in the New Testament, what we are to do with it. Okay, well, for the sake of uh, giving, presenting a cohesive introduction to the 10 Commandments. I've divided or organized the, uh, our study this morning, our look at uh, this topic, into three points. 
So in good homiletical fashion, hopefully, uh, we will come away with a clear understanding of these three things. Number one, what are the Ten Commandments? Number two, why were they given? And number three, and the issue that I've been emphasizing, how do we apply them? Or how do we keep them? Right? And, And again, everything that we say about the Ten Commandments, let me be clear, applies to the entire law. In fact, this is a good segue into our first topic, our first point of discussion. What are they? What are the Ten Commandments? They are literally the introduction to the law of Moses. You know, they are the first ten of the 613, but not just ten among 613 others, you know, that are touching on their own specific things. They are the most foundational. Don't think of... Don't think of the Ten Commandments as ten separate commandments of which the other 603 are doing their own separate thing. The Ten Commandments are not just the introduction to the law. They they are the essence of the law. Think of it like, I, I know some of you have probably done camping or Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. You know those cups that you can collapse and put in your pocket and pull them out, those plastic stacking pull-out cups? You know, you can pull them out. They've got several rings on them. That's, that's what the law is. That's what the law is, you know. And the Ten Commandments are that bottom ring, which if you were to pull it out, the rest of the cup would be useless. You know, not every analogy is going to be perfect, but hopefully that helps you to see what I'm trying to say about the Ten Commandments being at the base, at the foundation of the rest of the law. They uphold the rest of it. Or to put it differently, the rest of the law is really an extension of the Ten Commandments. To use another analogy, they're like the mesh, you know, on the posts of a fence that help complete it, right? Not quite perfect, because without the mesh, the fence is useless. Or to use another analogy, they're they're the details. They are the implied application of the basic principles that the Ten Commandments lay out. You know what? Let's just take it from Christ himself. Rather than have me using variously imperfect analogies, and I think you get the point anyway, let's just look at the direct and clear teaching of Christ himself on this point. And like I said, these things are pretty clearly laid out in scripture. We just need to organize it into a clear and cohesive whole. Which, by the way, just FYI, is uh, what we're doing here, you know, connecting the dots, drawing these larger conclusions. All of this is taught in Living by the Book, which is an excellent book. I used it for many years at Moody, FYI, when I was teaching how to uh, read and study the Bible, one of our introductory freshman courses. I'd still be using it if they didn't transfer the course out of my department. Sadly, I loved, I loved that course. And it's an excellent book by Hendricks uh, and Hendricks the law firm, a father and son, right? (laughs) No, but both uh, teachers, I I think the younger two teaches at Dallas, his father did. But uh, excellent book, and like like, uh, you shared, very clearly written. Uh, But anyway, it teaches, among other things, to do what we're doing here, how to, you know, divide scripture, to dig into it, and how to make those connections. And in this case, Christ gives us a clear statement regarding the centrality the foundationality, the all-encompassing, comprehensive nature of the Ten Commandments. 
In fact, what he does is collapse them even further back from 10 into 2. So look with me here, enough introduction. Look with me at Matthew 22. This is uh, a well-known passage of scripture. I know you guys are familiar with it. It's the greatest commandment section. So in verse 34, we're going to look at verses 34 through 40. So when the Pharisees heard that Christ had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. And the teacher, he said, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And of course, you know why he's asking this, right? Not because he has a genuine desire necessarily to know, but so that he can come back with another one that will trump it, so that they can trip him up, so to speak. You know, these experts in the law were thinking, here's a man who wasn't properly trained through the official routes. He'll give a commandment which might be good and, and, and basic and foundational, but we can probably come up with one that's even more foundational than that, even more basic, even more important. But of course they can't, because what does Christ say? Right? He quotes right out, and hopefully you see that. It's in red letters, all caps, and it's, he doesn't make it up. He quotes it. Well, of course he made it up in Deuteronomy when he quotes from it there, because he's the author of all of it, right? But he quotes, from, he quotes from a book that we really have devotions from, right? The very book that he was having devotions in for 40 days while fasting in the desert, no less, <laughs> and quoted all three of his responses from when confronted by Satan. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and what does he say right there? He says it, it's pretty clear, right? The greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your, and all your soul. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all that you are, in other words. With every fiber of your being, you are to love God. How can you trump that? And obviously they can't. In fact, while the guy is sort of flabbergasted by this and probably scrambling to try and find something to trump it with, which he can't, Christ throws in another. Right? He goes on to say, and I love this about Christ, by the way, and what a model for us. You know, he doesn't just answer the questions. He always takes these questions, even if not motivated by sincerity, and uses them as an opportunity to convict and challenge the asker. He doesn't just answer the question. The next thing he says challenges the asker. Because, yeah, as a, good, as a good Jew, he would have understood about loving God, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees generally, focusing worship on God, offering sacrifice, saying the right prayers. What they were not as good at doing, and it's not because they were Jews, it's because they were people like you and I, or actually, in most cases, not like you and I. That is to say, not children of God, not believers. They're like most of the world out there, just depraved, unsaved people. And although they got the outward form of worshiping God down, what they were not as good at is expressing that towards their neighbor. And so Christ says, here's the challenge, right? The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is also a quote from Leviticus 19.18. And by the way, not to get off track, although it's very easy with me, my students know they can, it's very easy to get me on tangents, but I do have to point out here, because it's an important principle, that this quote, I mean, the first, the first one, the greatest commandment is clear enough, right? In and of itself. It's not like you have to look at it in its context to understand. The second one is clear enough as well. Love your neighbor as yourself. But in that case, context would make it a little more challenging than even it is right now. I mean, just loving your neighbor, by which he means anyone whom God brings into your circle of 
experience. That's the Good Samaritan parable, right? The, the greater challenge comes when you look at that commandment in context. In Leviticus 19, 18, which actually begins, I think, in verse 16, that's the final culminating part of the commandment. It begins by, by uh, Moses saying, if you see your brother, your neighbor sinning, you must intervene on his behalf, lest you bear the guilt on his account. Therefore, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, here's the greater challenge. It's not just go out and proactively do good unto others, love them. That also means if you see a neighbor, a brother, sinning, it's your obligation to point that out, to intervene and to rebuke them, to correct them with love, but to do that. And if you don't, God will hold you guilty as well. Indeed, you know, as the, as the disciples said, who can enter heaven if that's the standard of righteousness? And the answer is no one, of course, right? But, but do you see how much more challenging it is even, I mean, beyond the challenge it presents us with, just as quoted in context, you see a sinning neighbor or sister, brother or sister, you must intervene or you will be held guilty, my friends. So unless, you know, if you don't want that, just live in a bubble the rest of your life, don't interact with anybody. But if you interact with the rest of the world, let alone believers, and you become aware of some sin on a brother or sister's part, it's your obligation. To, it's a command to intervene. But here's the thing. Christ goes on to say, and here, back to the point, verse 40, look at it, very clear, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Think about that. On these two, depend. And by depend, the idea there is hang. You know, in other words, they all lead up to this. They're all just extensions of these two basic commands, which aren't really commands as much as principles. They're, they're hardly specific applications, like don't harvest the corners of your field. They're, they're bare principles, aren't they? Love the Lord and love your neighbor. It doesn't give specific examples or how-tos there. They're basic principles, if you, really, if you think about it. But, but the point that Christ makes in concluding, that's the point, guys. That's my, that's my first point. What are the Ten Commandments? They are a slightly further extrapolation, just a tad further extrapolation of these two basic commandments, which are, in essence, the entire Mosaic Law. Which, even more than that, are the entire scripture. Look, when Christ says, on these two, hang, depend, or you could say, extend the rest of the law and prophets, he's saying the rest of scripture. I want to be clear about that. The law and the prophets, it's a common expression in the New Testament. That's how they refer to the entire Old Testament back then. That's not just, you know, the Mosaic law and the four big prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and maybe the 12 minor cooked into there, it, it, and, but not the Psalms and Proverbs. It's everything. This is an Old Testament, to this day even, Jewish way of referring to the entire Hebrew Bible. Because according to biblical theology, and again to this day in Jewish thinking, anyone who wrote any part of scripture was a prophet including Joshua. I mean, my goodness, he was a disciple of the greatest prophet ever. Just because he's a warrior doesn't mean he wasn't a prophet. Right? David, Solomon, I mean, you name it. 
right? Anyone who wrote scripture, who had any hand or part in it, was a prophet. Hence, law and prophets makes perfect sense as a designation of the entire scripture at that time, of course. By extension, for us, that includes the New Testament. But do you see the point? He's saying it all collapses back into this. If you just focus on these two, you're covering everything else. Now, I'm jumping a bit ahead to our third and last point regarding the how-to. But, but this is the point. This is what the Ten Commandments are. They are these two, in essence, which encompass the entirety of God's will for us. In fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, you can even see how they organize around these two more fundamental, how they rather collapse down into these two fundamental commandments. The first focusing on God, of course, to love him, meaning he is your sole object of love and divine worship, right? To divvy it up between God and another God or God and something else, whatever other idol it might be, is not to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, is it? Is that not what the four command, the four first ten commandments, think about it, the way God presents them, the four first ten commandments, they are all focused on God, on making him the sole object of your worship. And in the Bible, FYI, these terms are completely interchangeable. I'm talking worship, love, serve. When applied to God, they're completely interchangeable. To fear God, to love God, to worship God, to serve God, they're used interchangeably. In the Psalms, quite often, they're used in parallel to one another, right? The first four commandments of the ten all focus on loving God, right? The first, you shall have no other God. The second, make no image of any other, right? The third, not to take his name in vain. The fourth, to worship, set aside a day for specifically worshiping him. They're all focused on him. And then you look at the other six, five through ten, those clearly collapse down in to the second greatest commandment. They're all focused on loving your neighbor, right? Not stealing, not murdering, not coveting, right? They're organized clearly around these two greatest commandments. Or, again, to put it differently, the way Christ does, they collapse back into, they compress down into these two commandments, right? It's only because the Israelites didn't have the inner capacity to understand how to apply those two fundamental basic principles that God had to spell it out a bit more for them with the ten. And that leads us to our second point, which is why the law was given. So are we good with the first point then? Are we clear? What are the ten commandments? And again, this is just basic stuff. Obviously, you're going to go into it in more detail over the coming weeks. Uh, But as far as a general orientation here, the Ten Commandments are a summary, and if you want to put it this way concisely, a summary of God's will for us as presented throughout the rest, the entirety of Scripture. It's everything. It's God's will for us compressed into two, into ten basic principles, which you can compress even further into two. Okay. The second point, why were they given? Well, there's, there's at least three incremental answers to that. Why were the Ten Commandments given? And those incremental answers all follow the teaching of Scripture. Number one, and most basically, because of sin. 
That's what Paul says in Galatians 3.19, that the law, of which these are the first foundational introductory part, that it was given because of sin, right? Because man is inherently depraved after Adam and Eve blew it in the garden, right? Depravity has now come to reside within our hearts, and we need that outward parameter to guide us in righteousness, or we'll just go crazy with sin without any guidance at all. If you think about it, it was, and this is what Paul talks about in Romans, it was mercy on God's part to give us law. And that's how we should be looking at law, not as something hard that we have to look at with, you know, grinding our teeth. It was mercy on God's part to give us that guidance. In fact, quite in keeping with the theme of today, it's exactly what you'd expect of a loving, gracious Father God, and not just a creator who wound it up and let it go. Seeing that we have now fallen into depravity, that man fell into depravity as of Genesis 3, in his grace, God now laid out guidance to help him live in a moral and good way despite that depravity. But of course, even with the Ten Commandments, depraved humanity still didn't get it. You see that in Exodus 32 when they're first given. And again, I'm sure you'll go into all of this in the coming weeks, but, but that first installment of the law is, of course, given at Sinai, right? And that's all laid out in Exodus, of course, starting in Exodus 19, culminating in Exodus 32 when Moses comes down the mountain with those two tablets. By the way, not five on one and five on the other, as is often presented. Both were complete sets of the Ten Commandments. It actually says that, that each tablet was written front and back, a complete set, right? Following the custom of the day, according to which the emperor and the people he was making a treaty with would each have their own copy of the agreement that they would deposit in their respective sanctuaries. But God's sanctuary and that of the Israelites was one and the same, so both copies went in the same place. And the only reason God adopted that form was so that the Israelites, who were children of their day, would understand clearly what he was doing using a form that they're familiar with. You know, as if God was to come down and sign on the dotted line on a contract that we came up with according to the form we're familiar with. So he gave them those two copies, signed by his own hand, remember? It says in Exodus that God actually wrote those ten with his own finger. And they were deposited, well, at least the second time around they were deposited, because the first, in Exodus 32, when Moses comes down... This bears out clearly why the Ten Commandments were given in the first place. Why God didn't just say to Moses, okay, here's my basic guidelines. Love me and love your neighbor with all your heart, mind, and soul. I shouldn't have to write it down or spell it out for you guys. Just do that. Clearly that wasn't enough because when Moses came down, even with that basic set of introductory general commandments, they were blowing it across the board, right? Starting with the very first commandment of all. Having no other gods before me, he says, right? They're worshiping the golden calf. And that breaks number two as well, making an image of another living thing to worship, right? And if you read through the chapter, there's several other commandments they're breaking. You know, sexual promiscuity, among other things. And that's where Moses throws the commandments, has to go up and do the whole thing again. But that bears out exactly why they were given. The first foundational reason, because of sin. Because of sin. But as I said a second ago, even with those ten basic commandments, the Israelites still didn't get it. Don't, be, don't, don't think hardly of them. Don't think badly about the Israelites. They were depraved people, just like the rest of humanity. Of course they weren't going to get it. 
And that leads us to the second reason that the commandments were given, not just because of sin, to help restrain it. And of course, that's the reason that the rest of the laws were given as well. But also, as Paul says a few verses after the one I just quoted in Galatians, you know, that they were given because of sin, he goes on to say that the law is our tutor to lead us to Christ. The commandments were also given to lead us to Christ, not just to restrain our sin, but to lead us to Christ. How? By showing that even if you just hold those Ten Commandments in front of you and forget the other 603, even those we can't keep. I mean, even the first we can't keep, to love God and no other, to have no other gods besides him. If anything distracts from our attention and devotion and worship, making him a priority in our lives, then we have not kept the first... Who can say that even a day goes by that they have loved God with all their heart, mind, and soul? We can't even keep the first one. Even those ten... Right? And in the process, it shows how imperfect we are and how much in need of a Savior, therefore, we stand. By highlighting our sin and imperfection, it therefore highlights all the more our need for redemption, for something to take away that imperfection, to cover, to remove that barrier to relationship with God. So that's another reason that the commandments were given. To restrain our sin, that's a general application to unbelievers, the nation of Israel at large, lead us to Christ, which it would only do, of course, with the remnant, because the nation of Israel, and this is true for any other ethnic group in the world to this very day, they're never all believers. There's always just a remnant within them. And then the third incremental reason the commandments were given, this is even more specific. So we're going from a reason that applies to everybody, the whole nation, then to the remnant. Now, within the remnant, this is even more selective. The third and final reason that the commandments were given was to, get this, develop our relationship with God. Now, look, ideally, that should apply to the same group as the second reason, you know, to lead us to Christ. If that applies to the remnant, those who are led to Christ, well, this third reason should also apply to the remnant, to develop our relationship. But I say it's even more selective because, frankly, not all believers develop their relationship with God, unfortunately, because not all believers push forward on their path to glory and grow in sanctification. How do you do that? First and foremost, through communication with God, through growth in his word. That's how you do it. That's what the commandments are for. By adhering to the commandments, the believer is growing in their relationship with God. They are developing their love for God. I mean, how often do we think of the word love and commandment in the same sentence? And yet, that's actually the central theme of 1 John. It really is. I mean, later today, if you have time or some week, read read that book. It's not a long book, right? But this is what it gets across concisely from beginning to end. The central theme is that if you love God, you'll keep his commands. 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God to keep his commands. Even in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself says in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Right? So by keeping the commands, the believer is therefore developing their relationship with Christ. They are developing their love for him. 
you're both expressing it and in the process developing it. In fact, in this case, uh, I would call your attention to the very first command God ever gave in the garden. You know, here we see this third reason for the giving of the Ten Commands, the first reason for God giving any command. Here we see it coming out in full force because there the reason is not to restrain sin. He gives the command before man has fallen. There the reason isn't to lead them to Christ. Again, they already are in relationship with God. Adam and Eve, and this is a whole other topic for another day, they were the only two beings, the only two human beings ever created, whoever, whoever began their existence in relationship with God. He creates them, and from the, from the moment he's done creating them, breathing that breath of life into Adam and finishing with Eve, of course, they are now in the position of children, and he is their father, right? And the first thing he does, as any good father should, is give them direction for life. And those directions entail one basic command, clearly given to a couple that is not yet sinful. So, again... It's not because of sin, not to lead them to Christ, but simply to help them develop their relationship with him. Through obeying his simple, single command, they will be continuing to express their love and develop their relationship for God. Although, I want, I want, I want you to see what a loving father God he is. Because the command is actually not what we typically think it is. Or I should say it's not all of what we think it is. And this is a a good segue to our final point, which deals with how to apply them. Because again, when we think of commands, we groan and grit our teeth and think, oh, I have to really struggle and strive. That's not how it was meant to be. Not for the Christian. Not for the child of God. To understand how we are to apply God's commands. Even before we think about applying them specifically, how we are to look at them. Just think about them. We need to look at the garden. We need to look at the very first command given by God to that very first couple who were in the same position as you and I, believers. And exactly what that command was and what it was meant to do for them. And that begins with understanding the command itself because the command was not what we typically think, not just what we typically think it is. If you were to ask most people, Christian or not, because this is such a well-known episode, what was that command that God gave in the garden? Most people would probably answer, don't eat from the tree. You know, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? But that's actually only the second half of the command. When I say it was a single command, yes, but there were two sides to it. In fact, it precisely parallels the first and second greatest commands as given by Christ himself, which are not two, but the two flip sides of one, bound at the center by love. Love God, and how does that reflect in your earthly relationships here below? By loving your neighbor made in his image. One goes with the other. They're they're rotating around the same basic axis, applying love, right? The command God gave in the garden, it's the same thing. It has a central pivot you know, dealing with obeying God and showing love for him in the process, but applied in two directions. When we think about that command, for some reason, we only think about the second part of it, only one half of it. But we don't think about the other, which is the first part, and the one that God begins with, and in fact, the larger one, the larger part. What is that larger part? Well, look with me at verse 16. So in Genesis chapter 2, that's where we are now. This is where that commandment is given in verse 16. 
So the, it says, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, now stop there for just a minute, at the risk of pointing out or asking you the obvious, do all your Bibles have commanded the man? And you're probably thinking, of course, what's the, of course, I mean, it's pretty clear, yeah, the Lord. If it's so clear, then why do we only think about the content of verse 17 as the command? Because in all your Bibles, I, I'm going to just stay, because I know it's true, in all your Bibles, after It says, commanded the man. You've got a comma, then opening quotation marks, right? And since that statement, that the quotation marks open up, since the statement is introduced with the verb commanded, clearly everything that is now part of that quotation is part of the command, right? And again, I know this is obvious, but bear with me, because it it apparently isn't obvious, because most people don't think about it this way. Therefore, everything he goes on to say now, meaning the rest of verse 16, is the first part of the command, which is what? You shall eat. Ah, okay, that's not what your Bible say, is it? You are free to eat, or you may eat, or what? You may surely eat, right? However your Bible puts it, it presents it as permission or almost advice or a suggestion, not a command. We don't usually express commands, you may, right? Or you're free to. That's just giving permission for something, right? I very rarely ever do this because I I don't want to give the misperception, and it, it would be a very big misperception that our translations are untrustworthy, but this is one of the very, very rare instances where our translators didn't quite do a proper job. And I I say that very cautiously because I don't want you guys to leave thinking that your Bibles are untrustworthy. That is so not the case. The places where I would say this kind of thing, and I say it very cautiously, hoping that you are thinking about it in a mature Christian way, knowing that translations are still a a human product and no substitute for the original languages that God has still privileged privileged us to have in thousands of copies, right? I mean, we're not Mormons, are we? for whom all we have is a single English translation. The, the one original has mysteriously disappeared. God has privileged us with more original copies than any religion has for their sacred text, clearly because they're important to go back to. All right, so please understand that. Please understand, I r- rarely do this, all right? I, and I wouldn't do it even today if I did not think it were so important to the point I'm about to make here regarding the command, but this is not a proper translation. And, and I say that again with... Um, not just as a professor at Moody for 15 years now, but specifically uh, a professor of Hebrew. I've taught Hebrew for 15 years. I'm trained in it with a PhD from the University of Chicago. I don't know what more qualifications I can have to make this statement, which is that the verbal expression translated, you may eat freely, or again, what else do you have? You, You are free to eat. You may surely eat. Yeah, that that is too weak of a translation. This is a command. Let me just cut to the chase. The expression he uses here, may freely, in fact, the Hebrew is exactly, exactly the same, exactly the same as the expression in verse 17 where he says, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what? You, now you all have shall not eat, right? You shall not eat. That's a command. The expression in verse 16 is exactly the same in Hebrew. The only difference is the absence of not. Let me repeat that. The expression, the Hebrew expression in verse 16 is exactly the same 
as that in verse 17, just without the not. Therefore, what God is saying, if we were to literally translate it, is you shall eat. You shall surely eat, if you want to give it that surely emphasis. But you shall eat from every tree of the garden. Now, on the one hand, you can see where the translators did, you may eat. Why? You shall surely eat? That's overkill. Why would God need to command them to do what they're obviously going to do anyway? What not More than that, what they have to do. What else are they going to eat? That's like me ordering you, you know, you shall surely breathe. That's silly. You, apparently our translators are thinking in that direction, but in thinking that way, I don't know what other reason it could have been, but in thinking that way, uh, they are actually obscuring the point that God is trying to make, which is indeed overkill. In other words, the point he's making here, if I could just cut to the chase, is the same exact one in the end that Christ himself makes. In, um, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, a passage you guys all know well, when he's teaching the masses, the Jewish masses who are burdened beyond almost bearing, not just by the vicissitudes, you know, the ups and downs of life generally, but the many laws heaped on top of them by the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beyond the 613, thousands more bowed down to the ground with that burden. And Christ says to them what? In Matthew 11, you know it, verse 30, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. We're not spiritual anarchists as Christians, just free to do whatever we want. Paul addresses that in Romans 6. We have law. And any truly good and loving father should give law, that is direction, to his children, as God does, right? But that law was ideally meant to be as easy as plucking fruit from a tree. That's the point. For us, yes, it seems like overkill, and maybe we don't think of commands like that. But why? Why do we define and think about commands as inherently hard? Why? That's how we think of them post-fall, living in a depraved and fallen world, but is that how they were truly meant to be? Loving God, obeying him, that is living in conformity to his will, should be as easy as breathing, as easy as plucking fruit from a tree. So, in other words, you shall eat from every tree of the garden. As they picked from the fruit of the trees and ate it, which, yes, they had to do anyway, and yes, was not a command the way we think of it. It's just, it's an easy thing to do. Pluck, eat. As they did that, they would be obeying God. And that's how keeping his commands was meant to be. My friends, that's how it will be. When you think about glory in our life there in the new creation, redeemed with all our sin and depravity, done away with and expunged, that's what it will be like. Obeying God will not be a struggle for us. It'll be as easy as breathing, as easy as plucking fruit from a tree. We just can't think of it that way because we we're not like that now. We're still infected, mind, body, and soul with depravity. I mean, it's all forgiven and dealt with in Christ, but we still have to struggle with it. It's hard to think about that, about obeying God and it being so easy like that and not having depraved thoughts and whatever come into our heads as we do it. But that's how it was meant to be. That's how it will be. And that's what God is trying to say with the language that he's using. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you shall eat from every tree of the garden. So if there's 100 trees, 99 of them fall under this command. 
Maybe there were more. I'm just rounding it so we can understand the breadth of God's grace. His command is not just the one restriction. Such a severe Old Testament God. That's how we picture him, right? Satan has done his work better than we realize because defining the command by the restriction alone is exactly how he presents it in chapter 3 when he seeks to tempt the woman. Has God truly said, you shall not eat? That's not how God words it. God didn't say that. He began by saying, you shall eat from every tree in the garden. So 99% of the command is inevitable, it's as easy as breathing, and it's expressive of God's paternal grace. The restriction applies to just one tree, let's say 1% of the command, and even that shouldn't be looked at in a negative light as something we've got to grit our teeth in doing. We should look at that as an added privileged opportunity to express even more deeply our love by doing something that's a little harder than just reaching out and plucking from a fruit, something that takes a little more effort and which therefore expresses all the more love. I mean, if we can't help but pluck from trees and eat the fruit, I mean, yes, we're keeping God's commands, yes, we're obeying him, but how hard is that? To do something that takes more effort, you know, a piece of fruit that's appealing in every way, both in terms of the look, the taste, even the quality of knowledge that it would give, to hold back from that, how much more expressive of our love for God is that? That's how we should be looking at it. And all of the commands God gives, including the first ten, not as things we have to struggle with, but privileged opportunities to express our love for God by not doing them. And, but here's the thing. By not, by not eating from that fruit, that one tree, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, not only were they expressing their obedience, but here's how they were growing in faith. Look, look at this. Here's how that would also facilitate their growth in relationship with God. Namely, if they couldn't get that knowledge of what is good and what is evil in one shot by eating the fruit, there's only one other place they could get it from, which would be what? The only other source, the only other source in creation of that knowledge of what is good and what is evil. And this is, in essence, what the law is giving us, what is right, what is wrong. God. If they couldn't get that knowledge in one shot by eating from the fruit and knowing right away, this thing is wrong to do, that one is right. Or in this instance, it's wrong. In that instance, it's right. If they couldn't get it inherently, the only other place they could go to when a question arose was God himself. And that would by definition, a long-term process of growth and relationship. As each new situation, each new question comes up, go to God. Remember, they had unfettered, unrestricted access to him in the garden before the fall. As we see, there were no barriers. As it was meant to be, and as it will be in glory, when John says in Revelation 22, no more temple, no more courts, no more barriers... Everything is redeemed. Creation, we, and the Lamb himself on his throne, shining without obstruction. We'll have that same unrestricted access as we were meant to in the garden. But that's the point. The only other place to get that knowledge as each new question would arise. What is right? What is wrong? God, every time they go to him and interacted with him on those issues, they'd be growing not just in knowledge, but in relationship. How does a relationship grow? Communication. To get that knowledge, they'd have to communicate regularly with God. There is no shortcut to Christian growth. The temptation was to take that shortcut, which sadly they did. And ironically, as they did it, 
understood that what they were doing really was wrong. At least Eve did. Adam already knew. And that's what Paul points out in 1 Timothy. Eve was deceived. She didn't really know. But Adam sinned. He knew. He's the more culpable. Anyway. But do you see? That's the third application, the third reason, the third reason that the commandments and the law generally is given by God. Not just to restrain sin, not just to point to Christ, but ultimately for the believer, and that's you and I, to help us grow in Christ as we apply those commands, as we study them better and better, right? And become more and more familiar with them and then understand better and better how to conduct ourselves in different situations through the example and teaching of Scripture. As we do that, we are growing in faith because Scripture is the living Word of God, and as we study it and grow in that knowledge, we are growing in relationship with Him. Because we're not studying and interacting with a dead word, we are interacting with what the writer of Hebrews calls in chapter 4, verse 12, the living and active Word of God that is able to pierce to the very heart and soul of the man. We are interacting with God himself, and we are therefore developing... That's how you develop relationship fundamentally. Supplemented, of course, with prayer. That's another way we interact with him, but it has to be grounded in his word. You have to know what to pray about. You know, what's appropriate to pray about, what's not. Okay. And the third and final point, guys, we're almost out of time here. I took a little long on that second one. We've already touched on this anyway, so we don't have to talk too much. How, do, how, do we, how does it apply? So in general, again, what is it? The essence of the law. Why was it given? Those three incremental reasons we discussed, right? And finally, how do we keep it? How does it apply? So, okay, I've already touched on that a bit by studying his word and understanding the example and teaching that it gives us. It tells us what is right and what is wrong, right? It supplements the conscience every person has with more specific information, And this brings us back to what I opened up with. You know, when I spoke about those laws that don't seem to apply, let me start by saying that the the Ten Commandments are not like those laws. They're still pretty basic, and they all apply to us, right? All of them across the board. The Sabbath command has a bit of uh, discussion surrounding it, exactly how that applies. You know, let's say at the very least that it indicates we should set aside a specific day to gather in fellowship, in praise, in worship at the very least, Uh, although I think it is a little more than that, right? And of course, not just me, but uh, many scholars, theologians uh, would say that beyond just indicating that we should set aside a day, the Sabbath command, and you'll probably hear about this on a future Sunday, so I'll just say briefly, actually points us to relationship with Christ. In other words, it is the one command beyond all the others that symbolizes relationship with him, not just one day, but from the moment of salvation every day, the rest of your existence. And the reason I say that is because of the discussion in Hebrews 3 and 4, which is devoted to the Sabbath rest, and in which he says, the writer of Hebrews, you can read those chapters on your own, he says that, in essence, the Sabbath rest is a picture, a symbol, a type, a shadow of salvation, of us resting from our works to please God and entering into the rest that he gives to us. So actually, I would say, although I think we do have to gather, of course, and there's other verses that emphasize the necessity to do that, not to forsake the gathering. In my mind, the Sabbath command fundamentally is fulfilled, not one day a week, but every second of every minute 
of every hour of every day of the rest of your life as a believer. If you're a believer, you are, by definition, fulfilling the Sabbath command. You are at rest in relationship with the Lord. And your obligation is now what to do on that basis. What do you do at rest? You worship and you obey. Right? All right, well, that's the Sabbath command, in essence. All right, but how do we, how do we keep the Ten Commandments? You know, again, the Ten are pretty basic, as they are. You know, you don't need extended discussion to understand what they're saying. Although I think we can collapse them, as, as we already discussed, even down into two, those two that Christ himself lays out, to keep it more, let's say, manageable in our minds. Right? Again, Christ said the entire law, not just the Ten Commandments, but the whole rest of the law, including Scripture itself, collapses back into these two. If we just take those two and put them like two blinders, you know, around our eyes, we're fine. We're set. As Christians, that's all that we should need. We are not unsaved individuals. We're not like unsaved Israel who needs things spelled out. And by the way, it's, 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 it's interesting. If you look at how God gives those 613 laws, he starts with the Ten Commandments, which, again, are very basic, even though you could collapse them back into the two, more basic. They're still pretty basic, right? But if you look at how he gives the, the later laws, you can actually trace. You can see how they're further and further specifying the previous ones. They get more and more specific. It's, it's really as if God is saying, okay, you guys, as a nation, as an unsaved people, you, you can't quite understand how to apply the previous basic principles. Let me spell it out more. Let me spell it out more. And after, he gives, he gives the law in little bursts. And after each burst, you have an episode of disobedience showing they couldn't keep what he gave. He gives more specific commands. They blew it. Gives, so it's like God is clearing the path. You know, then as they're straying off of it, he's putting up fence posts. Then as they're climbing over the fence, he's putting up barbed wire. Then as they're cutting the barbed wire, you see, that's what he's doing. So at the end of the process, we have incredibly specific laws given to a people who just don't have the inner capacity to live them and apply them because they don't have what we do, which is the Holy Spirit. Without simplifying this, let me simply say, how do we apply the, how do we apply the Ten Commandments? We apply them by following the principle of love. Loving God and loving our neighbors ourselves. Do, do we as believers who have even a basic familiarity with Christ, his works, his life, and the many other examples scattered throughout Scripture of godly men and women, do we really need to have it spelled out for us as to what that means, how to love God and love our neighbors ourselves? It should be intuitive. It, it should be absolutely intuitive to you. If you have common sense, which I know you all do, and the Holy Spirit, which, again, you do if you're a believer, you should understand implicitly, you don't need God to say, listen, if you're a farmer, leave the corner of your field unharvested so the orphan and widow can glean and have something to live on. If you're a believer with the Spirit of God within you, like, let's say, one of the Old, Old Testament, like one of the Israelites who were part of the remnant did, they wouldn't need that command to know that they should leave that unharvested so that the, the orphan and widow could have something to eat. They would do it implicitly because that's how you love your neighbor. You know, if you see your neighbor lying by the side of the road in distress, you don't need God to spell out what to do in order to know that you should help them, that you should take care of them. You don't need God to say all this. If you're walking by the side of the road and see a bird's nest lying on the ground, falling out of the tree with the little, uh, you know, fledglings flapping around inside, you don't need God to give you a law saying, pick it up and put it back. 
Even though they're not people, it's still a principle of mercy, a principle of grace. There is actually a command to do that, by the way, in the severe Old Testament law. You don't need a principle to tell you, listen, while you're harvesting your, your, your wheat, let, let the oxen glean too. Let it eat as it's harvesting. Don't muzzle it. It's sweating to give you your food. Let it, let it get something too. There's a law for that too. You don't need God to tell you that if the Spirit of Christ is living within you and you apply that principle of love. And actually, that last command I gave you really drives the point home emphatically because that command, which arguably is the least applicable to us today, is quoted twice in the New Testament. Twice. By Paul in two of his letters to urban Christians who therefore were no more farmers than we are. And he applies it to them. So this is an incredibly specific command, not the Ten Commandments, but the point is the same. You look at the essence of the command and the principle of love that's guiding it and ask yourself, how do I apply that in my situation? How does Paul do it? Look with me. Look, I know you're familiar with this. This is in... um, uh, so the two are in 1 Corinthians 9.9 9 and 1 Timothy 5.18. So let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 9.9. 9. 1 Corinthians 9.9. 9. Okay, so clearly the law was not irrelevant for Paul in teaching Christians under his care. This is what he says. In verse 9, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9, is it, is, it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Then he says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? By which he means God is not just concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking, is he not speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If therefore we, sh- we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much that we should reap material things from you? Do, do you see the point he's making? It's the same one when he quotes that same law again in 1 Timothy 5.18, and he supplements it with the saying, therefore the worker is worthy of his wages. In other words, he's saying God gave this principle so that you could deduce, therefore, with a basic amount of common sense and the Holy Spirit living within you, if I'm to treat animals this way, how much more human beings made in God's image? If I'm to let an animal share in what it's giving me benefit from, how much more should I share with the teachers in the church from whom I'm being given benefit? That's how the law applies. Every single law, even the most inapplicable one like this, has an underlying principle that applies to us. If we just ask ourselves, what is the principle of love, of mercy and grace, being expressed in this principle, in this law? Although the good thing with the Ten Commandments is that you're collapsing it there, back down into some pretty basic principles. Don't steal, don't murder, etc. But again, you shouldn't need to hear that. If you just apply the single basic rule of your neighbors yourself, obviously, then you won't kill, you won't murder, you won't commit adultery, etc. In fact, if you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, you don't even need to be told to love your neighbors yourself. You'll do it anyway. Because your neighbor's made in his image. Do you see? That's how we apply it. It's not meant to be hard. That's the law of Christ. And so, therefore, as we strive to keep that law, the law of Christ, we are keeping the entire law of Moses all that it was meant to instruct us in and lead us to, we are keeping it. We are. Because as Christ himself says, to quote the verse I opened up with, right, it all hangs on those two fundamental commandments. 
the two sides of which are expressed in the ten. Loving God and your neighbors. Doesn't have to be hard. Well, the principle isn't. The doing of it, that can be a challenge, especially when the neighbor is unlovable. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, let you, I'll, let, I'll let you take it up from there. Let's pray.